Well, for those of you who've been with us uh, the past few weeks, you'll know we are in 1 Samuel. We invite you to turn there. Uh, if, you're, if you're new with us, please, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, but you have a s- smartphone, you can pull it up, <laughs> download an app or Google it. But we do want you to have your nose in the text, as we say, because my own thoughts are worthless and bear no authority uh, unless my words match what God's word says. So please turn to 1 Samuel, coming right after the book of Judges, and we're still in the time of the Judges. You remember what we learned last week in the story, the narrative, where Israelites were fighting the Philistines, Israelites being God's people, Philistines being not God's people, and then they lose So what do they do? They're like, hey, go get the ark, the ark of the covenant, that holiest piece of furniture in the temple that represented God's very presence, right? They're like, hey, God's got to fight for us if we bring his ark out here. They bring the ark out there. You remember what happened? They got beat even worse to the tune of the Philistines capturing the ark and taking it back with them. And what we learn from that is that we uh, put ourselves in grave danger when we presume upon the presence of God just because we have sacred things in our lives, like baptism, like communion, or church, or a Bible on your nightstand, those are sacred things, but they're not saving things. And so if you want further clarity on that, I uh, encourage you to read through 1 Samuel 4, maybe listen to last week's sermon. But then it kind of changes. The focus is now, we're going to leave Israel for a minute, and we're going to focus on the Philistines. How did it go with them when they took the ark out of its context, out of where the ark belongs? They took it home with them. What is that? What what happens to a people who do that? They take something that is representative of God and belongs to God's people. I don't want to be God's people, but I like this thing about God. And I want to capture it for my own life. I want to commandeer something that is God's and belongs to God's people, but I don't want to be God's people. I want to commandeer it for my own purposes. Have you ever met someone who congratulates you for going to church, but tells you they're done with organized religion? And you go, oh, wow, you're not a believer? Oh, no, I'm a believer. And then your brain, the gears in your head start turning like, okay, I'm not dealing with an atheist. I'm not dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in God or doesn't want anything to do with God, but they also don't want anything to to do with God's people or the gathering or pastors, ugh, right? We don't want anything to do with that. I'm just spiritual. I remember meeting a guy once and we started talking about God and faith and I just asked him about, you know, where he is and he said, well, I talk to God and I read the Bible, but on my own. And immediately I thought, he's more lost than an atheist. And this narrative that follows what happens with Philistines who captured the ark and thought that was pretty awesome and then quickly found out not great at all, that's that guy. And the people in your life that you've met, and maybe you were there once too, where from the outside you saw things you liked about church, but you also saw stuff you didn't like, 
So you wanted to take the things that you liked about it and leave all the other stuff that God says is necessary and you kind of make God in your own image. That's what the Philistines were doing in the capture of the ark. So I hope you're there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we'll just look at the first five verses where God clearly establishes that uh, there, there are no gods that are a match for him. When the Philistines put God in their temple with their chief god, Dagon, God executes him. Interesting. First five verses. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But then, uh, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So this was an ancient Near East practice. You remember when David kills Goliath? He doesn't just check his pulse and go, yeah, he's dead. Right? Total conquered of your giant. I just destroyed your giant execution style. And so God, in a sense, knocks over the idol and they're like, huh. And they just stand them back up. Right? And they just go back to their day. And then the next morning, God knocks them over, decapitates them, dismembers him. I mean, the statue, right? But it represents their idol. It represents their God, this, this God that they worship. And so they didn't take Dagon out. And now we serve Yahweh. What they did is they, they have Dagon, who's obviously more powerful than Yahweh because he captured his ark. And maybe the ark, instead of being Yahweh's footstool, can be Dagon's footstool. And maybe Yahweh can kind of be uh, Dagon's sidekick. He can be Batman's Robin. Everybody knows Batman is the cool one, but he could be Robin. You think Yahweh likes that? Being commandeered and ripped from his rightful place to be put next to somebody else in a sidekick role? Not really. He just pushes him over and decapitates him. Like, I'm, I'm the one. Interestingly, as you see, that they, they, they brought the ark from Ebenezer, which was called God Helped Us, and the God didn't show up. We saw that last week. And they took it to Ashdod, which if you remember back in Joshua, Ashdod was given to Judah. And the next thing you know, Ashdod is theirs. So you see Israel just losing ground. They, they've been losing ground for a while. They've lost their moral center a long time ago. As you read through the book of Judges, that story just gets worse and worse and worse. They're lacking a leader sorely. Samuel's coming, but he's not quite in the role yet. We'll see that next week. But here, they're leaderless. They're, 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 their priests were terrible. They died in the battle, as God said they would. And now they've lost their ark, and the ark is in this place that used to be theirs. But then, the Philistines are starting to realize something's up with this ark, <laughs> It didn't do anything for the Israelites positively, but it does seem to be doing something for us negatively. It had knocked over our statue. 
But I guess you could just deal with that and maybe craft a different statue or put Dagon in a different temple and put the ark in a different temple. So they didn't, it didn't quite sink in yet. They're just like, huh, hmm, ah, weird. But they persist in keeping the ark. What are they going to do, give it back? And then the tumors hit. We don't know exactly what the tumors are, but protruding lumps in the skin that were apparently painful. And we see that in 5, 6 through 12. The Lord's hand, you'll see several times in the text, the Lord's hand is heavy upon them for taking this ark. We'll read in, uh, beginning in verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Not all the Philistines, just the ones where the ark is. Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Verse 8, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Now, if you lived in Gath, would you be like, okay. <laughs> and maybe a mixed, mixed reaction. Maybe some of them like, okay, well, those Ashdods, they're dumb anyway. You know, and why should they only have, they get Dagon, why can't we get something? You know, so maybe, maybe some of them welcomed it, but others of them kind of heard about some of the stuff going down in Ashdod, and they might have been wincing, to say the least. Well, let's send it to Gath. So they brought the ark of God, the, the ark of the God of Israel there, verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Ekron's turn. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. Verse 11. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Interesting that this is driving them to their knees. It is not a mild outbreak. It is a pandemic that is killing people and the people that are not dead or not dead yet are in pain and anguish to the point of crying out to heaven, any gods, anybody that would listen, please take this away. But you notice how it's, uh, it's God's surgical strike. It's not all the Philistines. It's not the people that surround the Philistines. God isn't just going after everybody that's not Israel. It's only the people, and of the people, only the town that has the nerve to take something that belongs to God and try to make it theirs. That there is a, there's something about that specific thing that really incites God's actions here. And so whichever city had the nerve to take it into their own fold, they would experience 
these breakouts. They moved it from town to town. People just keep getting these tumors. And as we continue to read in chapter 6, you'll see in a moment in verse 4, 11, 18, this tu- these tumors are somehow connected with rodents. And as I you know, read you know, commentators, most of them seem to think that maybe this was some version of the bubonic plague. And those of you who know about the Black Death in the 1300s, the Black Death was um, a, a plague that was carried by fleas, but the fleas would use rats to move around. And the fleas would jump off the rats and bite you. And when they bite you, they give you the disease. So it's not really the rats, <laughs> but the rats are the carriers. And so one-third of the European population was wiped out in the Black Death between 1346 and 1353. So maybe that's something about what they're experiencing here. The bubonic plague, you would, you would get lumps, you would, you would get black ears, nose, eyes, fever, chills. You had about 10 days to live. You still have about 10 days to live if you're, if you're untreated. But it's, it's so nasty that uh, no one even gets inoculated by it today unless you work in a special lab where you have to get inoculated for that. But they don't just roll that out. This is nasty, nasty stuff. And so there, we get a little bit of an insight into what it might be that they're experiencing. It is not God just kind of flicking them, going, no, I'm just going to pester them. I, the ark needs to get out of here. You guys need to just be done with this thing. And so they're at the point where they're ready to send this thing away, right? Now they, in chapter 6, they don't consult the lords, but they consult their priests, their diviners. Hey, what can we do to send this ark out of here? Because we're, we're not going to carry it. All the carriers will die, you know? You can't call a UPS if there was such a thing. They'd die. Like, what do you, how do you get rid of this thing? It's embarrassing to have the Israelites come and pick it up. What do you do here? So we see in these uh, opening section of chapter 6, them sort of convening about this. 1 through 9, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we, uh, tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They don't want to send it just by itself. They know they need to put something else with it. Gifts? Or what do we do? Verse 3, they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Remember, every God has their own list of things that they want. And they're not familiar with Yahweh. They heard stories. They, they heard about Egypt. They're not sure. So what is the guilt offering that we're supposed to send with them? They answered five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your, lord, your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps... He will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? 
After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. Yoke the two cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. It's almost humorous to think that after seven months, each town that has the ark gets the tumors that they're still thinking maybe it just, that's how the pandemic broke out. It just only those cities, you know, maybe, I don't know, but probably not. Probably it's his heavy hand, but just in case we should do like a test and see what it, if it really was that. So they devised this idea. They don't get it from the old Testament or anything like that. Just in their minds, the way their minds work, a guilt offering of gold, something very valuable. It, it costs us to give this to God. And the gold is shaped in the things that you've used to afflict us. And we're recognizing, yes, we're guilty. Sorry. But what you're going to do is yoke it to these cows that have never been yoked together. I'm not really a cow expert, but I'm guessing if you have two cows that have never been yoked and they've never been yoked together, they're probably not going to cooperate real well. And then to make it worse, they've got cows that just had baby calves and the maternal instinct to be with that calf would mitigate against that cow going anywhere except for where that calf is, right? So if these cows cooperate together and march away from their baby calf that they just had, away from them to Israel, that's got to be God. That's what they're thinking. That's probably not coincidence because there's no way these cows would do that. So that's how they, that's how they set it up. They obviously need to watch to make sure the cows do what they're supposed to do to see where they go. But they are watching to see if this is indeed God's hand upon them like they've been convicted of in the story all throughout so far. But they were resistant. It took seven months. We see in verse one, it's not like after 30 days of tumors, they're like, okay, fine, because why? We're stubborn. People are stubborn. And that's why the diviners are like, don't you learn anything? Haven't you learned anything from the Egyptians? The Egyptians were only afflicted as long as they took something that was God's, his people, and tried to keep it for themselves, for their own benefit. But once they let go, they let go of that and just, we'll just be normal pagans. We won't be commandeering pagans. We'll just, we'll be us and you be you. Then God left us alone. God didn't save them, but also God didn't afflict them. He was only afflicting them when they were keeping in captivity his people. That's what we're doing. We're taking his ark and we're not becoming Israelites. We're not approaching the temple. We're not reading the Old Testament. We're not worshiping Yahweh, but we're taking something that's his that we perceive as powerful that maybe we can use on the battlefield. And we're, we're, we're commandeering those blessings without being a part of God and God's mad. Get this out of here. So the men did so, verse 10. They did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. 
And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. Again, I probably should have looked into this more, but I think that means they're, they're kind of ticked. <laughs> they don't want to go. They'd rather be home with their calves, but they're basically objecting <laughs> as they are miraculously forced to go in the direction that they're going. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, this is the Israelites now, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. We'll go 17 and 18. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Now as we move into that portion, we see that the Israelites are rejoiced. They're rejoicing. They're relieved to see that the ark has has come back. They immediately sacrifice it, uh, sacrifice those cows to the Lord. They praise God that the Lord had done this. It's it's obvious that these these are unescorted cows (laughs) that just made a beeline to, and then stopped right at the stone. Like, use the stone, man, worship time, okay? So they're seeing it, they're recognizing it, and of course, they appreciate it. So what are we learning from the Philistines? What were the Philistines learning from the Egyptians and now learning for, for themselves? They're learning that God will not be commandeered for someone else's kingdom. God refuses to be adopted for someone else's agenda. We don't write the agenda. God writes the agenda, right? We don't have little kingdoms that we use God for, for our own personal battlefields. God has a kingdom, and we're either on board or we're not on board, okay? Now, the Egyptians, when they released Israelites, they were just not on board, right? But when they were trying to keep the Israelites, they were like taking God's people and using them for their thing. Now the Philistines were moving from a people that were not on board to like, we'll adopt the ark. The ark is good. And now they're meddling. Now they're trying to do something that is especially dangerous. As we think about that for today... I guess we could think of it in in national terms, but I want us to think about this in personal terms. For people who are basically the Egyptians or the Philistines today, what do they look like? 
I think they look like people who believe in God. Right? Philistines aren't atheists. I'm talking about with regard to Yahweh. Do they believe Yahweh exists? Yeah? Do they believe Yahweh is powerful? Yeah, why do you think they want the ark? They don't want the ark because it's beautiful carving. They didn't put it in a museum. They put it in a temple uh, right next to their God that is over their success, over their battles. When they defeated uh, Samson back in, in uh, the book of Judges, they attributed that to Dagon. Dagon is more powerful than Samson. Dagon wins. That's how they thought. So to put the ark in there is not to say, oh, we don't believe in this Yahweh stuff. This is just a really cool carving. You know, look at, they call these cherubim. <laughs> no. They believe Yahweh exists and they believe that Yahweh is powerful. But rather than coming underneath Yahweh as their God, they're taking Yahweh and putting him underneath their agenda. Do people do that? Yeah, people do that. You have people that are atheists. You have people that don't, they don't believe in God. But you have people that believe in God, but I'll just follow him my way, like the guy I was talking to those many years ago. Like I said yet last week, it's, it's a scary thought. And it could be confusing. But we are too simplistic when we just have black and white. You have Christians and non-Christians, people that follow God, people that don't follow God. There's just two clear Things. Well, in the end, that's true. In the end, they're sheep and goats, and that's it. But in our de deceiving hearts, our confused minds, and in this messy life, we can get those categories mixed and confused because you've got people that, like the Philistines, they like certain things about God that are powerful, but they don't necessarily want God on his terms. They want to enjoy God's benefits, but they're not concerned with belonging. And that's a big difference. This is why it is very tricky, dangerous, when we evangelize people and we're trying to convince people to come on board. Do we often say things like, I know that you are living a difficult life right now. You're addicted to drugs and you've tried 12-step programs and you've tried to give it up and you've tried rehab and you've tried all this stuff. What you need is Jesus and Jesus will clean you up. Now, can Jesus clean somebody up? Yeah, that's why I said it's tricky. But if somebody comes to Jesus, not for Jesus to be Lord of their life, not for Jesus to completely take over their life, not to be sold out for Jesus, zealous for Jesus, solely centered on Jesus, but come to Jesus so that by Jesus' touch, I can have some power to get this thing out of my life, which is ruining my job and ruining my family and ruining my relationship with my kids. It's ruining all this stuff that is about me. If I could get some of that power and take care of this me stuff, then I'll adopt Jesus into my agenda. And Jesus, as we would say growing up, don't play that. He will not have that. Some people come to church they, or come to God because they realize that Judeo-Christian principles, as people say, I'm getting kind of tired of that term, honestly, but Judeo-Christian principles, you know, that's the best way to raise kids. That is a good way to raise kids. <laughs> but if you adopt 
Christian parenting from God, but you don't let God adopt you, then you're a Philistine, right? You're, you're looking for ways to get things, God to do things in your life that, that Christians do too. So this is why I say it's tricky. The ark should belong with its, his people. But we saw that when the people were just satisfied with the ark and didn't care about God, they got killed too, right? But now the ark is commandeered and captured and taken to people that they don't want a temple, they don't want to do for somebody today. It might be, I don't want to do the whole church thing. I don't want to do the whole you know, people thing. And usually, usually it's because I, I smell hypocrisy, right? I like God, I just don't like his people. I like Jesus, I just don't like organized religion. The problem with that is you claim to like Jesus and then disown the very thing that Jesus set up, which is to build my church. So, is that a dangerous thing? I think it's a dangerous thing because you have people who claim Christianity, they claim to follow Christ, but they actually don't want Christ. They want a servant, someone who will serve them in particular ways. They want power for change in particular areas, but they're not necessarily surrendering themselves to Christ and his people. So for someone to say, well, I read the Bible on my own, but I don't need anyone else's opinion. Do you hear how that sounds quite elevated? I don't need other people to talk to me about my interpretation of scripture. I just read it by myself because I'm the man. No, that, that's not repentance. Repentance is I, I need help. And a lot of God's help comes through the context of his people. So as we read this, we need to be really clear, really clear. If you're talking to a loved one who's struggling with an addiction, if you're talking to a loved one who's starting to have kids and they feel like, man, I really need to raise them morally and I'm realizing that I need to mature. <laughs> um, you know, well, if you want maturity, go read a psychology book or something. If you want to belong to God, then let's talk about that. And this is why, this is why even in the testimony you heard this morning, there was some fishing and there was some searching. And let me try to do things on my own. And you saw the beginnings of that was let me take some Christian principles and bring them into my life for 40 days, right? But then somewhere along the way, it struck John. I can't go around repentance because that would be to do what the Philistines are doing. I want to take Christian principles and adopt them into my life and make my life look a certain way, shape it into a certain way, and the Bible is good for doing that. But that's different than falling on your knees and repenting before God and going, I don't belong in your temple, and I dare not commandeer you for my temple, but through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you'll adopt me into your temple and your people and your covenant. Now, as we look at that, hey, it's not enough to believe in God, and it's not even enough to believe that God is powerful. That's not necessarily true conversion. It's not just to come to him to kick drugs, to kick loneliness, to find meaning. There's another one we do. You feel like you don't have purpose? Come to Jesus. He'll give you purpose. Jesus is not there for purpose-drivenness. Although you, 
come into your purpose that way. We come to God on his terms. We come to God for him. Another dangerous sign is, ah, man, when I think of heaven, it sounds really boring. Well, why does that sound boring to you? Worship, that just sounds boring. Wow, focus on God is boring? Focus on God is boring? Are you a Christian or do you just go to church? That shouldn't sting. But if it does, I hope that you assess why it is that you follow Christ. If Christ is boring and he's only beneficial to you in certain departments, that's a problem. That is a problem. Now, of course, if you seek Christ, he does benefit you because someone who truly seeks Christ is delivered from drugs and is delivered from loneliness and there is meaning and there is purpose, you know. But those are benefits of the personal relationship. We don't seek those things instead of the personal relationship. The Philistines didn't want a relationship with God. They just wanted his stuff. Now, of course, they wanted the benefit. They didn't care about belonging to him. And then the Israelites quickly move. It's very frustrating. But the Israelites quickly move from a worship service to a funeral service. Because they don't know what to do with the ark either. And that's how this episode ends. Verse 19 into the first two verses of chapter 7. And then we'll close. And he, God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. This isn't the Philistines anymore. The ark is home now. And people are still dying. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You see that last line? <laughs> you would think, okay, God killed, the English version says 70 men. We'll get to that in a second. God killed these guys for looking upon the ark. We'll get to that in a second. And then you think, okay, that's done. We put it where it's supposed to be. And after 20 years, everything was all good. Happily ever after. They kept lamenting. Because what do you do with that? You've got an ark and you don't have anybody to handle it appropriately. They ask the question, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? None of us can do it. The Philistines can't do it. But as soon as we start going, ha, you stupid Philistines, you're not righteous enough. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. But we are. And then that becomes a problem for Israel. When the text says that uh, 70 men, you might have a footnote that says uh, 50,070. And you're like, that's a big difference. <laughs> Which one is it? Most Hebrew manuscripts say 50,000. But then Bible translators, apparently the ESV as well, think 50,000 in that little tiny town. When we do our archaeological surveys, a little tiny town couldn't host 50,000 men. That's not really possible. So they go with alternate texts that shrunk it down to 70. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I will say this. God struck a great blow. 
a great blow. Now, 70 is not nothing. Lose 70 people, that's, that's a tragedy, obviously. But you think about the Philistines, what they lost on the battlefield was 30,000, or, or the Philistines killed 30,000 on the battlefield, is the author ramping that up and going 50,000 for just disrespecting God right in his face. Maybe. But it kind of ends on this sad note, this note of lament. Why? What were they doing? They were looking upon the ark. That's a problem. That's not a problem, but it's difficult because you might think that what they meant is they were looking into the ark, picking it up, and like, let's gaze into it. And those guys were dying. One difficulty there is if you saw the first 30 guys open the gate, I mean, if a box came to your house and the first two or three people in your family that looked inside the box just immediately dropped dead, that'd be really sad. But would you then be the fourth person? to purposely open the box and like look in there and dig and like what's killing my people probably not I don't know unless they're just that stubborn it's possible but the text the Hebrew text just says look on the ark does that mean everybody who oops I glazed I gazed at it oh I saw it and then they immediately dropped dead I'm not sure I think everybody would be dead the people that received it (laughs) from the Philistines would be dead uh, how do you approach it blindly or just listening for cows? I mean, it, it just, that becomes problematic. I think the best way to understand it is looking on it in a certain way with presumption, not recognizing that this is a very holy presence of God and I can just sort of waltz my way into its presence. I can look at it just like I look at anything else. Why? Because it's furniture, man. Now, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to sound, you know, I don't know, fundamentalist or something like that. But many of us grew up in churches where there was just sort of a respect. You know, you dressed up to go to church. There's a sense that church, there's something special about church. And we did that at Moody Bible Institute, too, when I was a student there. I mean, it was khakis, tucked in shirts, you know, collars. You didn't have to dress to the nines, but it was just like, hey, be respectful. We're studying to train in ministry for the Lord. I went back to teach in 2013. Kids are in PJs in, the, in their seats. I was like, what the flannels and socks? I was like, what? I thought this was Moody Bible Institute, man. Now I get it. I get it. It's like, oh, people, uh, prior generations put so much weight on the seriousness of church. And then we kind of want to show that God is personable and he's cuddly. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter how you dress. And I don't want to make it about dress because we don't have a dress code here. Just be modest. That's the dress code. I just, I just want us to be careful to not so, to put Jesus in blue jeans and a T-shirt with a skateboard. And he's just like, he's, you know, he's so approachable. Remember Revelation? (laughs) He's the rider of the white horse. He has the fiery blazing eyes. Jesus is a God in all of his weight and awe and splendor. Now the real dilemma is God says, have an ark. Have it in your presence, but don't die. They don't have an option to not have the ark. They can't send it away like the Philistines. That's their dilemma when you look at the text. Who's able to stand before him? This is unfair. The Philistines can send it away. We have to have the ark but not die. How is that possible to stand in the holy presence of God, look upon him, but not die? 
Well, the answer is fed to us through the, the overarching narrative. Who's the next character that comes up in chapter 7? Samuel, the prophet, the priest. And what does he do? He anoints the first king. So we go back to those three roles. Between Judges and Samuel, we're told over and over again, they were in a messed up position because they didn't have the right leader. But as we move through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, is anyone the right leader? Not until the true and better David comes on the scene. So to be able to gaze upon God is to look upon Christ who's gone before you and has taken that death for you. Now we get to look at it. The, tur- the curtain is torn. We don't need priests. They would wrap the ark in three layers so that even the priests don't look at it. And then the author of Hebrews tells us because Jesus went as the high priest, come on in to the throne room. Not waltzing in PJs like, okay, what's up, God? Fist bump. Not, not that. Right? Not that. He's not your pal. But you're also not going to die. You have life in him. And he does go before you and he does fight your battles for you. Not because you took something of his and made it your own, but because you are taken by him and he made you his own. Isn't that the more beautiful story? Not for God to be a part of your story, but for you to be a part of God's story. That's the better book to be written. And that's what God is doing in your life, brother and sister. We don't have to get all up in arms when people take things of the Lord and try to make it their own, but we do need to be clear to them. That's not how it works. That's not how it works, friend. I know you've been hurt by hypocrisy. I've been a hypocrite myself. Come to CFC and meet some real people, right? Or, or find the church that's closer to them. It's not only CFC. Find the place that's close to them and let them know that God is, doesn't have perfect churches, but he's, he's looking for people that are willing to jump on board with his agenda rather than commandeering God for their own personal agendas. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help in this.